our Bibles, if you would, and let's open them to 1 John chapter 5. And this evening, we continue our study in this fifth chapter, and we're getting close to the end, and we've come down to the last of John's arguments concerning the doctrine of Christ. This fifth chapter is where arguments for true Christianity reach a focal point in John's letter. Uh, Three positive proofs of Christianity converge in these first 12 verses of the chapter, and they finally culminate in the purpose statement in verse number 13. And the purpose of the letter, which is something we're going to get to a little bit later when we get to the 13th verse, is that struggling Christians would have full confidence in their faith, and they would know that they have eternal life. Now, the most important part of all in this is that eternal life is found in Jesus Christ. And so they can't mistake that. They can't be wrong about who Jesus is and who their faith is grounded upon or all hope is lost, all confidence is lost without that kind of faith. And so beginning at verse number 5, the final proofs for the deity of Jesus are given And the testimony is given, and it's very important to recognize that the most substantial testimony that we have as to who Christ is, is given by the one and only eternal God. Now, the main part of our study for the next couple of weeks will be in verses 9 through 12, but let's start with verse number 5, and we'll read down through verse number 12. 1 John 5, verse number 5. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in the earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Now, most of you have been very consistent with your attendance here in the Wednesday night Bible study, and so you've heard the previous messages on verses 6 through 8. And to me, this last chapter in 1 John is really one of the most interesting that we have in Scripture because it causes us to search our knowledge of the Scriptures and to recall some very important principles and events that are taught in God's Word. Here we have the opportunity to consider the ministry of Christ, how that it started and how that it ended, and how that God has given testimony that validates the claims that he is the Christ. John has given his own testimony, which he did in the opening verses of the epistle in chapter 1. And when we studied those particular verses, we noted that there was a sense of urgency about this as John writes, because he doesn't begin this letter in the customary way with salutations, but he plunges in immediately into arguments forcefully declaring 
that he and the apostles could absolutely affirm the humanity and the deity of Jesus. And the urgency is because of a heresy that was floating around and beginning to gain a foothold in the church that Jesus Christ was not really the Son of God, but that he was a man, a man whose body was overtaken by the Holy Spirit, which, in, which enabled him to live a holy life and to do some good things that enabled him to be a good teacher, but he was not God. He was crucified. And before that happened, the Holy Spirit left him so that Jesus died as only a man. And that false belief about Jesus has some very serious consequences because it removes the way that we're reconciled to God. It removes the offering for sin. It removes the sacrifice that satisfies God for the crimes that we have committed against him. It removes the atonement, which is the whole purpose of the revelation of Christ. It takes away the means by which we are redeemed and that man is brought back into harmony with God. So this is not a minor point of difference. This is actually the difference between life and death, and we're speaking between a difference between heaven and hell, which is eternal life and eternal death. So it's not an insignificant thing when you have people like Mormons or Jehovah Witnesses or anyone else that changes God's revelation of his Son. So here in this last part of the epistle, John gives us then the ultimate proof of the deity of Christ, which is the testimony of God. Now, the last messages were entitled, The Confirmation of the Christ. And these, uh, those messages prepare us here for verses 9 through 12. And so this whole section in verses 6 through 12 is about the reception of valid testimony. And that's where we'll begin with this study tonight, is the reception of valid testimony. John is very concerned that we should understand that valid testimony has been given concerning Christ. In verse number 8, he said, And there are three that bear witness in the earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. And that word witness is very, a uh, very important one. Uh, testimony comes from witnesses. And so six times in verses 6 through 10, John uses this word witness, which means to testify. It means to give evidence, to bear record. And as we studied in a, in a previous message, it means to remember. And so he gives us three witnesses that testify of Christ. And this is not by accident because John says there is more than one witness Because according to the Jewish law, uh, two or three witnesses is what it takes to establish valid testimony. And in this case, the witnesses are the Holy Spirit, the water, and the blood. And we recall the significance of those witnesses. The value of the Holy Spirit's witness is self-evident. But there was a little bit more explanation that we needed for water and blood. And we've learned that the water referred to the baptism of Jesus, which was his inauguration into his ministry. And this is when God spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And at that same time, the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. And then the blood that John mentions refers to the death of Christ, that he was not just a man that died, but that he was as much God in his death as he was at his baptism. And so that's the purpose of John stating in verse number 6 that Jesus came by water, but not by water only, but by water and blood. 
And that was a direct refutation of the Gnostic belief that Jesus was a man that was entered by the Holy Spirit at his baptism, but was no longer possessed by the Spirit at his death. So the testimony of these three witnesses validate John's testimony in chapter 1 that Jesus is eternal life and that he is the manifestation of the Father. And if you've been following these arguments as we've gone through this, in in verses 6 through 8, we see that John has actually been talking about the testimony of God all along. He calls upon three witnesses, and each of those three witnesses is backed by none other than God himself. And so now in verses 9 through 12, he brings another very important principle to bear, and this is concerning the character of the witness. The character of the one who witnesses is very important. And that was another important part of Jewish jurisprudence, because a witness had to be a qualified witness. And we have that same requirement in our courts of law. If you call on someone to give expert testimony, then you want someone who's qualified to talk in uh, whatever their particular field of expertise would be. And if someone is going to testify to something, what they've seen or heard, then that person has to be vetted in order to see if they're likely or unlikely to tell the truth. So in the Jewish system, there were certain people that were excluded from giving testimony. For instance, a thief could not give testimony because he was already proved to be untrustworthy. Those that had committed financial indiscretions could not be called on for testimony. And that included people like the publicans, the the tax collectors. They were not allowed to testify in Jewish courts because they were known to be extortioners. Publicans were despised because they were Roman collaborators and worked against their own people. They'd been given the license to collect Roman taxes, and in doing so, they exceeded their authority, and they pushed it beyond acceptable limits and began to extort more money than was actually owed. And that was the way that they enriched themselves. And you may remember, Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And the first thing that he did upon receiving salvation in Christ was to say that he would return all the money that Harry, he said he would give half of his money to the poor, and he said that he would restore four times the amount that he'd taken, had stolen from anyone. So publicans, tax collectors, were excluded from testimony. A violent person was excluded from giving testimony. And I thought this was really interesting, that shepherds were prevented from testifying. Shepherds were considered to be untrustworthy, and the reason they were was because they would often allow sheep, their sheep, to graze on another person's land, which in their minds, or the people's minds, was tantamount to stealing from someone else's resources. And those of you that are hooked up to somebody else's Wi-Fi or cable, you might remember that, uh, you might have the same situation. But I thought it was interesting that how far that shepherds had fallen in the estimation of the people because the children of Israel was originally a nation of shepherds. Uh, this, this is one of the reasons that the Egyptians moved Israel, the children of Israel, into a separate place in Egypt. If you remember when Joseph was the vice regent of, of Egypt that Pharaoh gave the Israelites the land of Goshen. And he did that because that was a land that was lush and green, a a place where they could raise their flocks and their herds. And and, in that story of Joseph, it's kind of interesting. Say, if you remember this, that Joseph 
had not yet revealed himself to his brothers when they first came to see him. They didn't know who he was. It had been all these years since they had sold him into, into bondage in Egypt. And, of course, through that time that he was there, he'd raised up through the ranks, got out of jail, got out of the, got out of the prison, and then Pharaoh had made him second in command. And so when Joseph and his brothers or when his brothers came to see Joseph, he, was, he recognized them, but they didn't recognize him. And so he invited all of them to come to his home and to eat with him. And when they actually sat down for the meal, Joseph did not eat with his brothers, and the Egyptians would not eat with them as well. In Genesis chapter 43, it says, And Joseph made haste, for his bowels did yearn upon his brother. Now that's when he saw Benjamin, that he wanted to just hug Benjamin because he loved him. And he sought where to weep and entered into his chamber and wept there. And he washed his face and went out and refrained himself and said, Set on bread. And they set on him by himself, or set on for him by himself, and for them, that is for his brothers, by themselves, and for the Egyptians which did eat with him by themselves, because the Egyptians might not eat bread with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination unto the Egyptians." And the reason that the Hebrews were an abomination to the Egyptians was because they were shepherds. The Egyptians were idolaters, and they worshipped the animals that the Hebrews ate. They worshipped sheep, and the Hebrews couldn't care anything less about that. They ate the Egyptian gods. So they separated. They would eat with one another. So the fact that they were the shepherds set them apart from from other nations. Israel didn't worship animals, and they ate animals. And I think it's interesting here that the very thing that set them apart from others had become such a lowly occupation that it had become associated with dishonesty. And so shepherds were excluded from witnessing in courts of law. And I might add one more note to that, that David, who was the greatest king of Israel, was a shepherd. But by the time that you get to Jesus, which would have been uh, about, uh, I put you about a thousand years past the time of David, shepherds were, were just a lowly outcast. And it's really a strange thing, you might think, that when the angels appeared to the shepherds, that this was a very unusual group to receive the announcement, the first announcement of the birth of the Messiah. Now, all of that that I've just told you is to point out that the character of a witness is very important. The better the character, the more effective is the testimony of the witness. Now, we notice here how John progresses that argument. In verse number 9, he says, If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. Now, at some point, we have to agree that we are going to accept what other people say. I mean, believing is really a a fundamental that we can't live without. We have to trust other people. For instance, when you sign a contract and uh, someone puts their signature on a contract, it's their testimony that they're going to fulfill the terms and conditions of that contract. And if you didn't trust that they were going to do that, you would never even bother to sign a contract with them. So you learn to trust people. When you go to the store and you buy a, a package of meat, you know that it's safe because somebody put the stamp of the USDA on that. There's a, there's a seal of approval on it, and so you trust that. I mean, there's some guy in Washington, D.C. that gave somebody the authority to go and inspect the facility where these cows are, and he said it's fine, and somebody put their stamp on it, and you accept that. 
And maybe it's not good to accept what anybody in Washington, D.C. says, but if you don't trust somebody, your life is going to end up in hopeless paranoia. So John's point here is that we trust men. The court trusts the testimony of men because uh, we have to believe them when we make decisions upon that testimony. So here is the axiom of truth that John's trying to get across in this passage, that if we trust the testimony of men, then certainly we have to accept the testimony of God. God's testimony is greater. God never has to be vetted by anyone because God is the source of all truth. Everything he says is truth. And so if you believe men, then you must believe God. Now I want you to go over, if you would, to the Gospel of John chapter 5. I want to show you how that Jesus used this very same principle when the Jews wanted to kill him. Uh, They said that he had made himself equal with God. And if you look at first at verse number 18, there's a conclusion that the Jews came to after Jesus had healed a man on the Sabbath day. In John chapter 5, verse number 18, it says, Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because not only had he broken the Sabbath, but he said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Now if you'll skip down to verse number 31, Jesus said, If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Now, that's a somewhat difficult verse that presents problems for commentators. What did Jesus mean by that when he said that his testimony wasn't true? Was he telling lies about himself? Well, we know that can't be what he meant because whenever he gave testimony, we always know that he told the truth. No matter what Jesus says, it is the truth. Now, what he's referring to there is that according to their estimation of truth, that it is inadmissible to bear testimony of himself. So in their eyes, he was not telling the truth. And that, of course, would cause us to think of that Jewish law that said that there are two or three witnesses that are needed. And Jesus could take care of that with no problem. But we notice here as we go on reading that man's testimony is brought into the picture and then Jesus supersedes man's testimony with God's testimony. Verse 32 says, There is another that beareth witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. Ye sent unto John, and he bare witness unto the truth. So the people believed the testimony of John, and there were talking about John the Baptist, and they knew that John was a prophet that had been sent from God, but John was just a man. He's a man who said Jesus is the Lamb of God. Then Jesus goes on to to bring the highest authority to bear. Verse number 34, But I receive not testimony from man, but these things I say that ye might be saved. He was a burning and a shining light, and ye were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. That's speaking of John. But I have a greater witness than that of John. For the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. So there you have two, John the Baptist, then you have the works of Jesus. These are witnesses. Then verse 37 says, And the Father himself which hath sent me hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice in any time nor seen his shape. And ye have not his word abiding in you. For whom he hath sent, him ye believe not. Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And so it's God 
that bears testimony of Jesus. And that testimony is greater than any that man can give because God is immeasurably greater than any person, any man, any woman in character. Now, the Jews had ample evidence in the Old Testament about Jesus. God had testified in the scriptures about him. And this is why Jesus says, search the scriptures. And if you do, you find that they bear testimony of him. You search the scriptures and you find that the prophets who spoke inspired words by God testified of him. And that's the proof that Jesus called on after his resurrection. He appeared to two of his disciples that were on the road to Emmaus. And in Luke 24, it says, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, that is a very important witness because none of these people doubted that the words of Scripture were accurate words, accurate testimony of God. Now, they weren't like people today that poo-poo the Bible and, and uh, are indifferent in the rejection of truths of Scripture. They believed the Bible. They believed that God had spoken, and so they accepted that as an authority, and God gave that testimony concerning his Son. And so when Jesus was born in that little Judean town called Bethlehem, that was a fulfillment of prophecy. It was proof that he was the Messiah, that he was born of a virgin. That was confirmation of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah seven fourteen, When he came with a ministry of healing and compassion, that was also proof of prophecy of the works that the Messiah would do. When he was rejected and nailed to a cross, that was proof of prophecy. And we could go on and on throughout the Old Testament scriptures looking at just hundreds of Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled by Jesus. And these were all things that were spoken by God through the prophets. So there was ample testimony of Christ. And he says, if you can believe men, then surely you can believe God. Now I want to go here to another passage in the Gospel of John. If you look at chapter 8, Jesus up the ante, so to speak, in this chapter to say that his testimony about himself was more valuable than man's testimony. Now, if you'll look at John 8, verse 12 and following, it says, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said unto him, Thou bearest record of thyself, thy record is not true. Jesus answered and said unto them, Though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true. For I know whence I came and whither I go, but ye cannot tell whence I come and whither I go. Now I hope you're with me here because what we have seems to be a contradiction. We read just a moment ago in chapter 5, verse number 31, where Jesus said, If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. And here the Pharisees accuse him of lying about his personal testimony. And this time Jesus says, Though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true. So how are we going to reconcile those two statements? Well, one thing we know for sure is that the Jews could reconcile this because there's not a one of them that said, Now, wait, wait, wait just a minute. Earlier you said that your record of yourself is not true, and now you say that it is? And they didn't make that comment. And you know why? Because they understood exactly what he meant. They could see it in his eyes. They heard the inflection of his voice. Earlier I said that 
he was talking about what was not true in their estimation. Now he's speaking of what is true because of what? Because he is God. Now he's talking about two different things. So his witness is greater because he is God. Someone asked me some time ago to show some things in the Bible where Jesus claimed to be God. And this is another time right here where Jesus claimed to be God. I mean, it is an absolutely foolish assertion to say that in the Scriptures we can't find where Jesus claimed to be God. If you just take some time to analyze what's said, you'll find this to be true, that the New Testament is weighted with all of the proof that you'd ever need with the full intention that Jesus had to declare himself as God. So Jesus proved that he was more than a man. They couldn't deny that he was more than a man. They said no one ever spoke like him. And they said nobody could ever do the works that you do. But they refused to believe the testimony. They didn't believe the testimony of Jesus. They didn't believe the testimony of God the Father. And that was proof that they weren't of God. In verse number 19, they ask in this 8th chapter, Then said they unto him, Where is thy father? Jesus answered, Ye neither know me nor my father. If he had known me, ye should have known my father also. And don't you think it's kind of passing strange that the Jews were so concerned about, about honest men testifying? I mean, they, were, they would vet their witnesses. They wanted to make sure they're not publicans, they're not shepherds, they're not violent persons, they're not criminals. They're not about to let them testify in a court of law. And it's very, very strange that they were so meticulous about these procedures, and yet at the trial of Jesus, they hired false witnesses against him. I mean, I think that's really interesting. They had to get two or three witnesses against Jesus to agree with one another before they could accuse him and get the charges stick. And they couldn't find two or three people to agree. Matthew 26 says, Now the chief priests and elders and all the council, listen, sought false witness against Jesus. Who did that? The chief priests, the elders, the council, the religious leaders. They seek false witness against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. At the last came two false witnesses and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. So they kept looking and looking until they found somebody that could twist Jesus' words and use them against him, knowing full well that these men were liars. And that is a witness in itself. The psalmist said, In my haste, I said that all men are liars. Apparently, he wasn't very hasty after all. So all of this points out then the unreasonableness unreasonableness of the of the Gnostics and their confusion about Jesus. John's no longer relying on the testimony of men. Now he brings God into the courtroom and he shows the testimony that God has given of his son. Was it reasonable to accept the testimony of men? If it is, then these smart philosophers, these smart men that claim that they were a few steps ahead of everybody else in spiritual matters and knew more about God than others... They had wisdom, they thought, so surely they could understand John's argument, the point of the argument that God's testimony is greater. So that's the valid testimony. The character of the witness is brought to bear for testimony. Now, let's consider one other thing as we wind this down for tonight, and that is the content of the testimony. 
What is it that God the Father claims about Jesus? Now, we're going to get through all these verses before we get done with these uh, couple, three messages. But for now, I want you to look at verse number 11. What is the testimony of God? And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Let me read that to you from the American Standard Version. And the witness is this, that God gave unto us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. So what is God's testimony about? Well, the sum total of it, the point that has to be distilled from all that God says about Jesus is the most important point that can ever be made. The point is that if you want salvation, there's only one way to get it. If you want eternal life, there's only one place that you can find it, and that's in Jesus Christ. Salvation is in Christ and in him alone. And if you get this wrong about Jesus, then you'll miss eternal life. And that's why John couldn't stand this error of the Gnostics. And that's why we find in 1 John a doctrinal test for Christianity. You can't get this wrong and ever hope that you can escape the wrath of God. You can't avoid the second death, which is punishment of hell, unless you understand who Jesus is and believe who he is. There is no other way but Jesus. And John has recycled that truth over and over again throughout this epistle. He starts in chapter 1, verse number 2. He says, For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. He goes on in, uh, from there to talk about the cleansing of the blood of Christ. In chapter 2, it's the appeasement of God's wrath through the sacrifice of Christ for sin. And then in chapter 3, he says, It is the commandment of God that you believe in Christ. In chapter 4, he said, You must believe that Christ came in the flesh. And so he's pounding the point home here in the fifth chapter that if you refuse the record that God gave of his Son... That is to bring you under the condemnation of God. And yet, we find that it's taught in Christian circles that there are other paths to God, that there are other ways. All that you really need to do is just choose the one that you like and just be very, very sincere in that belief. Now, as I've said many times before, if that's true, then Christianity is not one of the paths to God. There can't be an untrue path to God that's a path to God. I mean, who's ever going to argue for that? Christianity declares itself right here in the Word of God. Christianity says that Jesus Christ is the only way to eternal life. Jesus said that, and John said that, and both Jesus and John, as we've just seen, call upon the Almighty God, the very one that we're trying to reach, the one that we're trying to get to heaven to see, the one who's going to take us there. He's testified. God himself testified. There is no other way to get to him but through Jesus Christ. And so it makes no sense at all to hear what some man says when he butts heads against the Almighty and says there are other ways. I mean, who has the audacity to go into the courtroom with God and butt heads with him and say, God, you're a liar. You're not telling the truth when you say Jesus is the only way. This is so clear in Scripture. So this is the issue that John addresses as we go on here. And he's showing us there are consequences for belief and there are consequences for unbelief. And yet there are preachers that would have you believe that unbelief and belief are really not extreme opposites. 
that they're not really different positions. If unbelief is true for you, if what we call unbelief is true for you, then it's just as good as belief is for us. It's true for me. Either way, they say, get you to God. That's not what the Bible teaches. There's a difference between me and a Muslim. There's a difference between me and a Mormon. I know who Jesus is, and I believe his record. I believe the testimony that God gave of his son. It says in him is life, and only in him is their life. So this is simply a marvelous text. Here we have unquestionable affirmation of the deity of Jesus Christ. And the basis for it is the testimony of God. And God says he's not merely a prophet. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a God. He's not cut from the same cloth as Satan. He's not a man briefly inhabited by the Holy Spirit. He is eternal God. And eternal life is in him. That is the testimony of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we're able to look into your word tonight and what wonderful truths that we find here, unmistakable things that are said about who Jesus is and how plain it is to us what must be believed in order for us to have eternal life. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to preach that message to be uncompromising on what the word of God says. It's the only truth that we have, the real truth. God is the source of all truth. And so we must believe what you've said in your word. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to see what you've said in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.